0: to this episode of the Anth podcast. It's your host, Michael here. This is a podcast featuring archaeologists and anthropologists who study humans, both living today and in the past. I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Diana Moreiras. Diana, are you there?
1: Yes. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today.
0: And thank you so much. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about your work because uh, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and it just looks really fascinating. <laughs> um,
1: thank you. <laughs> yeah, can you
0: tell the listeners a little bit about like like what what label would you give yourself if you had to call you know yourself something some profession?
1: Uh, I would call myself a Mesoamerican archaeologist slash bioarchaeologist mm-hmm. uh, because I've I've dealt with uh, archaeology and bioarchaeology. Uh, in my training,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and where are you calling in from today? So
1: I I live in Vancouver, BC, in Canada. Mm-hmm. So all the way in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> but I am originally from Mexico.
0: Okay, that's cool.
1: So yeah, I, I've been living in Canada for thirteen years now. Oh wow!
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you find living uh, in Vancouver, and how do your family find
2: it?
1: Uh, we really like it. It's a really nice city to be in, and that was the first city I I got to know when I landed in Canada for mm. my undergraduate studies cool. and uh, and then I ended up going to Ontario for my PhD and then now I'm back in Vancouver, we really like it here, so, so I live here with my husband and my, my 17-month-old baby. <laughs>
0: um and can you see any inkling uh that that she might one day be interested in like the human past and like bones and all that kind of thing
1: oh my goodness i th- she might be uh <laughs> i she sees a lot of skulls around the house yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like i have so many skulls like in notepads or in the kitchen just you know different items and mm-hmm. she knows what they are and and she knows the name for them and so Spanish and yeah, and then we had like a a big um, uh, uh, skeleton for Halloween, and she mm-hmm. just loved it. So maybe she might be interested in, you know, human related uh, research or something. Yeah,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I know like uh, because there were um, there have been like a couple of guests on the podcast before who are also Mexican, and. Um, you know, like sc- skulls, like in iconography, is is quite common, mm-hmm. right, uh, back home.
1: Oh yeah, like it's like super prominent everywhere, and we we celebrate the Day of the Dead, and that's like the biggest celebration of basically like the humans and and their and their uh, iconographic, you know, symbols. Mm-hmm. So we we have a lot of different ways to portray. Uh, death and <laughs> yeah. and just the the human you know anatomy and uh and and we're like comfortable with it right <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah like uh you, because it's really like meaningful to to connect to um your ancestors and your family
1: yes definitely and i mean the this idea of connecting with the the deceased is comes from actually from uh mesoamerica and, uh a religious worldview, mm-hmm. and it's interesting how we were able to uh, take that from the indigenous perspective and kind of form um, form a like a, a festival uh, around that. And and obviously, there's a little bit of the Catholic influence as well. So it's like a merge of two worlds in yeah. in that that um, celebration. So it's mm-hmm. it's quite interesting,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, and we embrace it. Mm -hmm. really well over there.
0: (laughs) And when you were growing up, what was the point when when you knew that doing archaeology would be something that you could do for university, or you you would do for a career.
1: So I've I've always kind of had a a thing for archaeology uh, growing up, mm-hmm. uh, with Indiana Jones movies and all of that. Like at first, and and also I think I read a book on Egyptian mummification when I was like ten. Yeah, and I was like, I want I would love to be an Egyptologist, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. kind of got me excited at first. And I was just ten years old, so I was like, oh no way, I mean, how am I going to make money out of that, right? Right. And, and then when I was 14, I had history class, and I really enjoyed history, This history, world history. Mm-hmm. So I was intrigued by history. Uh, but later on in high school, I actually had, you know, Mexican uh, history as part of, like, our curricula. Mm-hmm. And and it was uh, all the pre, pre-Columbian histories, so all the archaeologicals, you know aspects of uh, Mexican history, yeah, and and that's what when I, it really drew me to our, more than history, archaeology, because I realized there was there's a lot that we don't know about our past and. And I thought this is you know archaeology is kind of like the way to access that uh, that record mm-hmm. of of our ancestors and and I was really interested in trying to gain more information from you know from that point of view. Mm-hmm. So I was really certain, like from high school onwards, that I wanted to be an archaeologist
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and especially like focusing on Mesoamerican uh, studies. Mm-hmm because that's you know that's my background and and that's that's how i you know i connect with my own cultural heritage and my with the, my ancestors mm-hmm. so that really really got me ex- excited uh, about uh, about the prospect of uh, of uh, being an archaeologist
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, for sure uh and so when you were at college or or university i, I know that um you know you identify as like an archaeological uh, scientist so a lot of what you do is based on like gathering data mm-hmm. analyzing it um and you know doing st- statistical tests to, to see whether your res- results are like robust. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, like when you were studying at first, um, were there particular like areas of archaeological science that really just like fascinated you, captured your um, attention?
1: Uh, well, I was always intrigued getting into studies about food and mm-hmm. food uh, consumption. So, ceramic residue analysis. So like taking like a residue from ceramics and analyzing them to find, you know, the chemical composition of, of that, what was held in the, in the ceramics. So for example, like maize or cacao uh, or chocolate, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I was interested in that. And, and also I started um, getting myself involved in in finding uh, other ways of uh, understanding and finding more information about diets so looking at stable isotopes was one of the uh, as a method was one one of the a really neat way to to study human diets in Mm -hmm. in mesoamerica Mm -hmm. and and so that's that's where i started focusing on for my master's uh, degree Mm -hmm. and and then i ended i really enjoyed working in the lab So the actual lab work was really, I think I I just enjoyed it and I was good at it. At the same time, I realized that was a skill I had. So I was like, okay, I think I want to focus on that for my PhD. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Yeah.
0: Uh, What particular skills do you think that being a good lab anthropologist or archaeologist requires?
1: Well, I think being able to... To work for it's not really well. It is a skill like working long hours at a time, and mm-hmm. in, in in a in the same kind of environment, like a clean environment. Uh, being re- really detail oriented is, I think, it's very important. Yep. And and making sure you make you write your proper notes and keep records of uh, of what you're doing as mm-hmm. you're as you're going along, uh, in the process, and. And and obviously, just like skills of like uh, pipetting, you know, mm-hmm. stuff into like the test tubes and and all of that, you you do de- develop those as you as you go on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and obviously, once you become good at it, then it saves you time. Yeah. Uh, weighing samples into you know their little uh, capsules for analysis like that it requires a lot of uh, practice and mm-hmm. a lot of. Uh, patience i would say <laughs> it's another another thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah also i think knowing that it's a long process like uh, not because you could get like um impatient about it right like oh i want the results mm-hmm. now but you you have to kind of wait and sometimes the instruments are not working or it just takes time to get the analysis to get your results so you have to be like mm-hmm. very patient overall and. And know that at the end, you're, you'll be getting something really, really juicy, really great. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did the PhD take?
1: Uh, well, it took me, I would say, five years, if we don't count mm-hmm. that I took a one year of maternity leave. Otherwise it's six years, but with the maternity leave.
0: Okay. Okay. I I remember when I um, went for my PhD, like data collection as well. And I don't know if you get this as well, but basically like when I'm in the lab and there are bones in front of me, I'm scanning them, observing them. um, Mm -hmm. I really do feel like, especially like when, once you get to that, like, I don't know, eighth or ninth hour that you've been in the lab because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, curators are going to give you access for a certain amount of time. So you kind of want to maximize Mm -hmm. that time. So you're in there for a long time. When I do that, that is like when I feel the most like a biological Anthropologist or bioarchaeologist, like that's the most
2: professional
0: I am. That's the like true like feeling that I have.
1: (laughs) It it does make sense because you're so immersed in it, right? At that point, Mm -hmm. that it definitely makes you feel like, oh yes, this I'm doing this. This is my profession. It's great, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and especially if you're enjoying it, that's the most important thing I think Mm -hmm. Uh, in anything we do. Is that if you enjoy it, it, it makes time go by quickly and and you don't feel it as like a hassle to stay mm-hmm. for eight, nine hours in the lab.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so so I think that's important. Mm-hmm. But definitely, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I feel, I, I share the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, this is our job. This is like the duty that we have now in society mm-hmm. is to, to be osteologists and like tell stories of people who, yes. who can't tell their own stories anymore. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's the... I see it that way as well. And it, it, it's in a way that um, helps us humanize those, those stuff. Uh, like you said, those people who are no longer with us who can't really tell us mm-hmm. <laughs> firsthand about their lives, yeah. but we are the ones who are like the messengers uh, mm-hmm. to interpret uh, uh, who these, who the people were and uh, where they were from and what did they eat and uh, you know, kind of what was their life story, right? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when you were uh, first trying to design your PhD study, uh, I'm curious to know whether you you start off with, you know, already having uh, connections with or you're reaching out to people who might have, you know, a site that they work with and, and you know, might mm-hmm. be open to working with you so that you can go investigate uh, what's there. Or do you start with, some social question or some biological question that you want to, to get at. And then you try and, you know, ask around which sites have have the human remains that, that you need to answer your questions. So which way around does it go?
1: Oh man, it's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it's a tough one because, because I think it goes both ways. Okay. Uh, and in my case, uh, I, I think this is, this was a little bit of a challenge I would say for me in terms of uh, for my research, because I, you know, I had my um, my education, my postgraduate education was in Canada,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I wanted to do research uh, with Mexican collections, right? But no one knew me over there. Mm-hmm. So th- for me, the challenge was trying to find, a, you know, like you said, a connection with uh, archaeologists over there who would kind of trust me and believe that I was a serious scholar trying to, you know, do proper scientific research on their collections. Uh, so it took me, I think, close to six years
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to to finally get uh, a door open for me mm-hmm. to get access to collections so so that being said i still had already a, a proposal or an idea of what i wanted to do so i also had the questions the the research questions uh, which were mostly uh, revolving uh the paleodietary analysis of uh Aztec, uh, humans, like, so basically people who lived during the Aztec period in central Mexico, I wanted to learn more about their diet. So that was my overall research question. Uh, and, and so I created, you know, a proposal and, and that way I could share it with potential, you know, uh, with people who would, give me access right to mm-hmm. to, to their collections the potential collections but I, I didn't have a, a very specific proposal at that point because I had no idea about the collections right nah. <laughs> so they were, it was really broad mm-hmm. it was a really broad proposal and and it was actually uh I, I ended up contacting uh Dr. Eduardo Matos Moctezuma who was the who was the director of the Temple Mayor Project uh, and he was still involved, you in, know, or he's still involved in, in, in all the research, uh, around the Templo Mayor, um, uh, research in, in central, so in Mexico city in the, in the, um, downtown there's like the the core Aztec temple, that's Mm -hmm. where they do their research. Mm -hmm. And, and I sent him this proposal and I was like, hopefully, you know, there's a way I could access, you know, some of the human collections from the Templo Mayor and maybe other sites around, Mm -hmm. uh, in the, you know, in central Mexico and the basin of Mexico. Yeah, and he's the one who responded. So, so he was. I'm really thankful for for that because he's the one who put me in touch with uh, their colleague, Jimena uh, Chavez, who's a bioarchaeologist as mm-hmm. well. And she knew all the, you know all the details of all the collections they had there, and she provided all the information for for me to create a proper proposal Mm -hmm. so that's why this took years (laughs) it took long (laughs) it took Mm -hmm. a long time so so uh, you know I started trying to to get in touch with uh, archaeologists Mm -hmm. since I graduated of undergrad Uh, originally I was planning to do that for my master's research, but it just it took so much time. I had to choose a different project for my master's.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so finally, it was like 2012, 2013 when when things started to come together for me, mm-hmm. and and I was able to to meet with the director of the Temple of My Museum and the curators and concert uh, the restorators there, like basically the ones who were in charge of the collections. Mm-hmm. Meeting with with uh, with a group of of them in 2013 and that's when they were like okay so the, the proposal looks looks great and and you can start with like two two of our collections um and that's kind of how i got started mm-hmm. and later on you know i was able to access more more offerings from from that site from the templo mayor yeah. and and then i was able to complete my you know, my uh, collections for study, which made it a more holistic uh, project. Mm-hmm. And, and and obviously, like, at that level of, like, a PhD project, right? Like, you have enough samples and, and you have enough uh, to do for your PhD, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, like, uh, I went through the same thing as well, where, you know, you... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. You're all I, in my case when I was in um, doing my PhD. I remember I was, uh, you know, it, it's all new, and you also perhaps like teaching for the first time, and you have like other responsibilities that come with becoming, you know, that level of like graduate student. And mm-hmm. in, in the UK, you do it for three years. Like it said, three years. Mm-hmm. Most people take four. <laughs> yeah. But like once I get to, once I got to that around that third year, that summer, I realized like, oh, <laughs> I don't have any data. I haven't like gone out yet to the, to get my data. And, you know, theoretically I'm supposed to finish in that third year. Um, that's what mm-hmm. we aim for. And yeah, I just, I was trying. But you know, it, you're, you're,
2: mm-hmm. there
0: was actually uh, one museum who didn't get back to me. Um, there was one museum mm-hmm. who got back, but like with a negative response. Um, there was another collection, a university that that said yes. it's they, they really wanted me to come, but that was not a good time to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all these like different factors that can influence your project. And so oh, definitely. Yeah, and then you get given two. I got given, um, I had access to two collections overall, the the number of time periods that I wanted to analyze. It was interesting because there is a little part of that, which is that you then are at at the mercy almost of like what there is. And then Mm -hmm. whatever broad question that you thought you would ask, you kind of like narrow it down now because you know, Oh, these teeth are well-preserved or, um, you know, these bones is like archaeological context. It's really interesting. Let's look into this. Yeah, so it's
1: almost like part of it, the the collections kind of dictate or guide you a little bit more to provide very more specific research questions. Yeah,
2: exactly. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: And yeah, so I think that's why it goes both ways. I mean, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you, you kind of have an idea of what you want to do, but then other factors influence what you end up doing. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So like uh, for my Ph.D., like I was mainly trying to reconstruct um, like diet and health and activity. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what kinds of questions were you looking at?
1: Well, I was looking mostly at uh, diet, so human diets mm-hmm. uh, in the Aztec period and also ended up looking at uh, uh, where people lived. So the residential patterns, uh, geographic patterns. Mm-hmm. So where, where they lived, where they came from and where they ended up. Like or or why they ended up uh, where they did, you know, at the end, mm-hmm. and and so we wanted, we well, I wanted to know, and we, in general, we all wanted to know mm-hmm. <laughs> where these people were coming from. Were they locals to Tenochtitlan, to you know, to Mexico City, and uh, and where were they? Were they taken from those communities, from like the Aztec communities, or were they coming from other parts of what was then Mesoamerica, and, and as part of you know? Uh, a war, or a tribute that was sent to the Aztecs, um, or as part of the slave system—that mm-hmm. that was also uh, part of of the of a really big part of of uh, Aztec uh, the the Aztec Empire at that time. So, so I think that that was like another intriguing uh, kind of line of questions that surfaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for, for my research
0: mm-hmm. when it comes to this like uh, Aztec uh, sacrifice like before we um, you know talk about diet or talk about like um, uh, where people came from or where they lived I'm so curious to know like where they when they were discovered is there anything interesting we can say about like the way that they were uh, found like their burial context
1: Oh definitely. It, it these are very in, very interesting collections on their own like without even like doing any kind of analysis. Uh mm-hmm. so so there's two sites that I that I ended up uh, sampling. One is the Temple Mayor of Tenochtitlan which is the core temple of the Aztecs and and from there like there's a whole variety of postmortem uh Practices that we can see from uh, that the priests were, you know, were engaging in. Uh, mm-hmm. So some of them were decapitated. So there's like marks on the back of their, um, like on their vertebrae, uh, mm. which is is like you can actually see, <clears throat> you know, cut marks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like
0: uh, around the neck or like around the lower backs.
1: So it was um, between the, I think the third and like fifth. A cervical vertebrae, so sort of like lower neck. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that kind of lower neck area, Mm -hmm. and and then there's uh, skull masks They were actually to place on architecture or to use as like in in the form of belts that they would you know the Aztecs would wear. So this is like a skull that was already you know treated and all of that, and and they were putting. Um, pyrite on the ocular orbit so in the eye sockets
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and and they would put flint knives on the nose and mouth uh, openings wow. and and so they would look like masks or like they're alive uh, mm-hmm. so 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 some of them had that kind of treatment and they were probably used in in sacrificial rituals or mm-hmm. part of different kind of rituals at the core temple. And then there were there were other skulls that were used uh, as uh, some Pantli skulls, which is, they were head head, uh, head racks that were placed like on posts. So mm-hmm. they have like uh, um, openings on the, on the sides of their skull. To, so the posts, the wooden posts would go through and then they would have like these right next to the temple. And so we see all these kinds of treatments uh, in the offerings at that site, uh, which is fascinating. And it also shows like the um, how well the priests knew uh, or were skilled to do these kinds of treatments, and very skilled uh, individuals, and and how they also they treated the the skulls and the just the human. You could say the mm-hmm. human skeletons. As they wished so basically there's one instance in one of the samples that I took from an, uh, a skull that is composed of a skull of a child but the mandible of a woman mm. and or, or, or vice versa right and and my colleague Jimena uh, Chavez she thinks that it's because they lost the mandible somewhere along the way so they found and an, they found another mandible that was you know wow. a, uh, Similar in shape, or you know, in terms of like the the features they needed, uh, not too mm-hmm. like uh, robust. Like so, it was like thin enough. So it's like a skull of like the the child, or you know, on the woman. So like it's not it's not off.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: looks decent for that particular uh, offering, and and so it also shows that I think the priest had access to a whole bunch of skeletons, uh, which is also mm-hmm. really interesting because we wouldn't know that. Uh, otherwise, unless we did like the actual archaeological and bioarchaeological uh, research mm-hmm. uh, at that site, and and then from the other side is a, a temple in Tlatelolco, which is the sister city of Tenochtitlan, so it's also in the basin of Mexico, mm-hmm. and and at that temple, it's uh, it, it, we find. Um, found a whole bunch of humans uh, who were buried either in ceramic urns or just directly on the ground. And, and they had different kinds of, you know, other objects in terms of offerings with, along with them. And, mm-hmm. there, uh, you know, there's uh, infants, children, and adults. And in this particular uh, temple context, they were offered in honor of the God of Wind, a uh, ekatocetzalcoato and and so it, it, it's, it's it looks like it was a one time ceremony and one time offering uh during a period of extreme drought in the basin of mexico that's also like very interesting because it shows all these different kinds of individuals were were placed in one particular spot so be it you know a child or an infant who is like 1 year old mm-hmm. uh, and then adults who were like 30 you know, between 20 to 30 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's also like interesting, uh, an interesting site. Uh, but in that particular site, there's not as, I don't think that as evidence, um, by archaeological marks, like cut marks that show how they were sacrificed. Um, uh, so, so there's obviously some of them have a little bit of information, but not as, uh, explicit as some of the Templo Mayor cases, Mm uh, but yeah, so these two sites are like the main ones that I, I focused on, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, we see all these different kinds of uh, of individuals that were chosen for for sacrifice mm-hmm. during the Aztec time.
0: In terms of like bioarchaeology, then I suppose like before you know, doing any kind of like isotopes, previous scholars when they were reporting, was it just like basic sort of like age and, and sex estimation and just left it at that?
1: For the, the, the Tlatelolco individuals, uh, there was some, a little bit of research done, like you said, yeah, basic bioarchaeological traits. Mm-hmm. And and they also did a, a, an ancient DNA study.
2: Hmm. Uh
1: to in the children because there were so many of them, to see to check if they were uh, male or female. Okay. So they did the like XY chromosome uh, study, and they found out that most of them were male. Mm-hmm. Some of the the scholars who who worked on this, uh, including uh, my colleague uh, Juan Roman, uh, they they interpret this as they, they were using children um, for for this particular god because he was. He was one of the helpers of Tlaloc, the like the god of rain. So the god of rain and wind, you know, brings rain. Um, and and the, these little helpers were named. They were called tlaloces, mm-hmm. and they were tiny little like. Uh, I guess. Uh, creatures yeah. uh, who control the rain up in the mountains that was like the the aztec uh, worldview in terms of like what these individuals were doing mm-hmm. the archaeologists interpreted this as they probably used children who were male to kind of uh impersonate the the little tiny gods okay. <laughs> you could say right. uh, in, in that particular uh, a ritual. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what was done like most of the paleopathological analysis was done on those as well mm-hmm. and they were like they were pretty sick individuals as well. Uh so so they, they had different uh, diseases um Mostly non-specific, but some of them were actually uh, an, anemic, so lack of kind of uh, proper nutrition. Yeah. And from the Templo Mayor, they also did paleopathological analyses, or like looked at the diseases uh, of these individuals. Uh, and my colleague Jimena Chavez, she she looked at the entire kind of bioarchaeological profile. So like again, postmortem treatment, Mm -hmm. how they were treated after death, how they were sacrificed, how healthy were they, which made it uh, like, it it was neat for me to be able to understand all of that information, like prior biological information.
0: Especially because like that malnutrition, um, you know, signs of malnutrition already like elsewhere in the skeleton were quite apparent. And so like, mm-hmm. yeah, it you know, it warranted like looking at the diet uh, closer.
1: Yes, definitely. And I definitely found in, in terms of some of the isotopic findings that mm-hmm. uh, some of these individuals were quite vegetarian. So, so it's, it's, it's possible that they didn't have, uh, they were not consuming enough protein in their diet. And, and that is interesting because it kind of shows that maybe they were not having access to animal uh, protein, right. As, Mm -hmm. as much as maybe other individuals in the society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, and, and that was kind of what I was able to tell, but also I was able to, to tell a little bit about uh, the practices of um, nursing and weaning in some of these infants, Uh, because they, uh, when you have, when, when individuals have a higher, Uh, values of nitrogen isotopes uh compared to the the i guess the local population but specifically the women of breastfeeding age Mm -hmm. they they show that there's they were still nursing before they were sacrificed
0: Mm -hmm. and so um we have had like a number of isotopists like isotomic Mm -hmm. chemists who have been on the show before and um I, just a like simple question first. Like, are you getting it from the bone or from the teeth?
1: So, for my PhD, I focus mostly on bones, mm-hmm. and so I did. Um, I analyzed carbon and nitrogen isotopes, and then phosphate oxygen isotopes for you know for the residential patterns component. And and I think for my postdoctoral research, I want to focus more on the teeth, okay. and and also look at diets and and again residential patterns, but uh, more specifically on like where were these individuals born or and raised uh, compared to uh, where they were living close to the time of death.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. So like. In the Mesoamerican like context, uh, and in your conversations with like other people who work in the field, have you gotten? good feedback for your work um, so far, like from, from what you've seen and mm-hmm. you know, w- what contribution do you hope that this uh, PhD research has, has given to the field? Uh,
1: well, I, I, I do think that it's really relevant in terms of the significance that it provides a new line of evidence uh, for the study of Aztec sacrifice. Uh, so looking at the individuals themselves who were sacrificed uh, and that's like mm-hmm. the, the, the new angle that I was able to provide. With my PhD research, and and uh, again, it helps to humanize them, and we don't just talk about you know human about human sacrifice from from the top top uh, down uh, concept. So like from the Aztec Empire and the priests and the emperor, like what were they doing? But more mm-hmm. from the ground up, like what were these individuals mm-hmm. uh, like going through and <laughs> experiencing? Yeah. And and I found that's like a very. I really enjoy that it's like a very neat line of uh, uh, angle or line of evidence Um, Mm -hmm. so so definitely providing some new context for these individuals and and um, so far like I haven't uh, published yet all my phd uh, chapters but this is what i'm working on now and hoping to get a lot of like good feedback and good response from from other archaeologists who work in miss america mm-hmm. but so far it's it's been overall positive yeah uh, from uh, those who, who who know me and and know my research um, and uh, they, they think it's it's providing, like again, new information that was not available before. Mm-hmm. We know we have a lot of ethno-historical information, and from you know the Spaniards who wrote about the Aztecs, and from the Aztecs themselves who wrote and uh, created codices or pictographs of of their their society, like mm-hmm. aspects of their society. Uh, but while they talk about you know the, the sacrificial victims. It's not like we know exactly what the sacrificial victims were going through, or, or where they were from, uh, specifically. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of like, you know, humanizing it, um, you know, I I first came across you on Twitter because mm-hmm. um, you had. Uh, you know, obviously it had gone through these skeletons and you had created osteobiographies about their lives based mm-hmm. on isotopic data, where they came from, what they were eating, what they were experiencing. And I, um, and I know that there has been, uh, there are some people who are trying to create a graphic novel or comic book about
2: mm-hmm. the Aztec
0: empire. And they actually like put faces to some of the skeletons that you worked on or that you, you, you kind of like gave them information about, is that right?
2: Yes.
1: So, so uh, the artist Paul Guinan and his collaborators, they are producing a free Aztec uh, comic book uh, about the Aztec uh, empire and the time of the, and basically the entire, uh, part of the history of the conquest, or I would, I would call it the Spanish invasion, not really a conquest, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, uh, and, and so they're, they are, uh, relying on, you know, all the scholarly research and the ethnohistorical historical sources to guide their, their comic books. So it's, it's, it's really, it's a really neat project. And, and so I came across, you know, uh, uh Paul Ginnan and basically the the comic book, which I thought was really really neat, through Twitter and and then I realized because I was creating these osteobiographical narratives, of, yeah. uh, it was only a few individuals that I that I worked on uh, for this particular kind of aspect of my research. Uh, I was like, oh, maybe it'd be neat to have you know have them when they lived, like more of like bring them back to life. That was mm-hmm. kind of like my expression, mm-hmm. uh, and so I contacted Paul and. And he was great to work with. And yes, I sent him um, kind of like a very brief description of of the the four individuals, and also a, an image or, or photograph of their context. So like the how the, the human remains part and, and the archaeological context. Mm-hmm. So how they were buried and what offerings or like objects they were like offered with, and and so he was able to recreate. Um, these kind of characters, but, but, you know, individuals who, who I had brought back to life through the narrative and it was a really neat kind of pilot project, but it got me thinking that it's something I would like to dig deeper into Mm -hmm. and and perhaps like be able to do a bit more of that in the future. Um, and, and just having the illustrations made it look like complete, you know, uh, and, and just gave them life. and, so, so definitely like a really neat thing I was able to do for my PhD and uh, it was encouraged by my, my co-supervisor at the mm-hmm. time, uh, Jean-Francois Miller. He's he the one who kind of brought the idea originally and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. I could try maybe to, you know, to to do some narratives and, and it ended up turning into a really, really nice component in my PhD thesis. Uh, so hopefully I can expand on that and it, it could be cool for... Uh, for in the classrooms, you know, like to, to be able to talk about this particular topic and, mm-hmm. and get students to read about these individuals or something. So, so definitely I got some good feedback about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, where, where do you think that your work is going to go uh, in 2020?
1: Well, <laughs> I'm hoping to start a postdoc uh, in 2020,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but just waiting on funding for it mm-hmm. uh, at, at UBC. I'm hoping to work with Dr. Camila Speller. It focuses on actual, actually, like paleoproteomics, or you know, the study of proteins and um, human remains. So, particularly dental calculus. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm hoping to to start learning a new <laughs> method cool. and uh, and be able to to learn more about these same individuals, but. Uh, through different kind of methodology and including uh, stable isotopes as well. Hmm. And I'm also delving into strontium isotopes and maybe lead isotopes. I don't know. Like I'm still open to, to be able to learn about other, other methods. And, and, um, and I'm currently like already working on a small, a small, like, pilot well not pilot but it's just a small project uh, already on strontium isotopes with a few of the samples mm-hmm. and and i'm hoping like a more a lot more of like these results will will come will be coming together next year so and and also hoping to get a few of my chapters published so so yeah so stay tuned for that
0: <laughs> where can people uh follow your work uh and you know see what comes next <laughs>
1: uh well i i'm very active on twitter so you can tweet at uh or find me at D I M O R E I d i m o r e i d and um and i i have instagram but i haven't really <laughs> used it I'm just starting to kinda okay. get into mm-hmm. it <laughs> so it seems to be like the new social newer social media platform so hoping <laughs> to get started on there too and it's the same the same um uh my same name.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and I also like coordinate or I'm like a social media person for two other societies. So mm-hmm. one is Class, which is the Canadian Latin American Archaeology Society. And, and so I put, we post a lot about, you know, Miss American research there, all related to field schools, programs, Uh, research findings, anything cool related to Mesoamerica, and uh, just in general, Latin America, South America, on Facebook as well. So it's uh, C-L-A-A-S underscore C-A. And and I'm also like an editor of uh, Women in Isotope Science. Mm -hmm. So that was an idea that came about from uh, two of my other colleagues uh, while we were doing our PhDs. Mm -hmm. We were like, well, no one really talks about like we haven't really seen like a lot of women isotopists like come together and yeah. like highlight, you know, and showcase their research. So we created like a community on, on Facebook and, and then I created a Twitter account as well. So we just basically, you know, tweet stuff that is re- relevant to, you know, research that um, other women in isotope science are doing. The link to that is like women isotope SCI on Twitter, but also you can find us on Facebook, just like Women Isotope Science. Hoping to that ad community can evolve into something bigger. I uh, just haven't had the chance with the, having a baby and all to kind of <laughs> get it going uh, more frequently. But, but yeah, I think um, just being present in so- on social media, its a, it, it has been really great in my experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you think of a, a good hashtag for this episode?
1: Uh. <sighs> Hashtag Aztec sacrifice. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> mm.
1: You could think of other better ones. I don't. Know. Mesoamerican isotopes. <laughs>
2: okay,
0: yeah, Meso Mesoamerican Meso- isotopes sounds good to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't want to make light of uh, sacrifice. That's all.
1: Oh yeah, yeah no. It's and also it's yeah. It's definitely like a topic of where you have to be careful about how you talk about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, definitely. And I've learned that uh, throughout my time working on it. I know I, I talk about you know human victims, which I think some of them would have been, mm-hmm. but th- that was like one of the words that were a little bit of a concern when I was when I was doing my research. Like, why are you calling them victims? Um, and so I we call them subjects, and then I ended up calling them you know just Aztec sacrifices mm-hmm. uh, throughout my my dissertation
0: because victim and sacrifice are like. You know, it could be like our modern day take on what's happening, but it's not their social dynamics necessarily.
1: Exactly. And and also, we're not sure if they were victims. So were they willingly Mm -hmm. involved in it? Uh, And and I mean, most certainly probably the infants and children were victims just because they didn't have much of a choice. Like the parents were the ones who were uh, providing uh, them for sacrifice. Uh, But, but definitely trying to make sure that it's not looked in a negative Mm -hmm. way. Right.
0: Um, And so what do you like to do when you are not uh, in the lab or not writing up papers? Like what do you like to do to, you know, get outside of work?
1: Uh, I like dancing. So that's like, my other passion life has been dancing since I was like two cool. <laughs> or, or since I was born basically. Uh, so yeah, so I like dancing. I've been, uh, I like choreographing and, uh, coming up with like, yeah, different choreographies and being creative that way. Um, just for fun. And, uh, yeah, I'm not super active at the moment, but I definitely, you know, go to Zumba classes mm-hmm. or whatever, like dancing classes. Like I, I can, I, I have the chance to, to go mm-hmm. to. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that's another passion of mine, hoping to also get more involved in, in dancing in the mm-hmm. future, like in the next few mm-hmm. years. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the best.
0: I was wondering, uh, like, mm-hmm. uh, becoming a, a mom, you know, relatively like recently as well, has like motherhood changed anything about like the way that you, you know, think about archaeology or think about lives in the past.
1: Oh my God, definitely. <laughs> yeah, like when you don't have kids, you don't really know what you're. You know how kids are and how they behave and how they they end up uh, since they're babies. They start uh, showing the personality mm-hmm. and. And how how early on they understand the world, like everything that's going on around them. So for me, that was, I think, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest uh, changes, because I was studying, you know, infants and children in the past, but not really knowing as much about how infants and children develop, mm-hmm. and and how they behave, and and how they have personalities, and and really, I was, I realized that even though. There were children who were taken by their parents for sacrifice. I'm sure the kids knew what was going on. And and they must have in some way, like, reacted. And I mean, some of them definitely, there's there's accounts that they cried a mm. lot. And so they knew what was going on. And, and that definitely, like, eye-opening for me. Yeah. <laughs> because when you think, like, oh, a one-year-old, like... Yeah, he probably didn't even know what was going on. Right. Like I know, my 1-year-old would have known mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what you know, what was going on if she had been born at that time. So, so that was one of the big ones. And then the other one is just the the process of nursing, when you're nursing your child and understanding how how that process works mm-hmm. and and how People like women used to do it in the past without, you know, access to formula or other type of supplementation. When things don't go well, like I, I struggled uh, myself nursing at, uh, in the first uh, first months mm-hmm. uh, with my with my baby, and and I was like, oh, thank God, like I live in the 21st century, right? right. <laughs> so that my baby can have proper nutrition because it's like a serious concern, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time, I'm sure like women, uh, you know, the pre Pre-Columbian women were were found ways to to solve those issues. I'm sure, like with uh,
0: yeah, some natural natural remedies of some sort.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, and, and providing like maybe like uh, maize gruels and uh, mm-hmm. kind of, and also uh, wet nursing or something. Mm-hmm. Their women could nurse their child, and, and you know there was like a big uh, more like a, the village helps you out, right? Like that that saying of like when you have a child, like everyone around you is there mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that was like a that was more prom, like really prominent back then. And definitely my perspective on nursing and also understanding like how the, 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 the requirements for, for development of children, like through like their diets, like what you have to feed them and at what age or, you know, what month you have to start, you know, the solids and, and what that could, um, what what I can bring back to my research on that to that mm-hmm. process and mm-hmm. and the, the weaning aspect of it too is definitely it's been really really great and uh, really eye-opening for me and uh, definitely changes like how I view the children <laughs> from my collections like that I am studying.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, listeners, if you want to, you know, ask Diana any questions, uh, then definitely find us on Twitter. The podcast is at Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. And you can use the hashtag Mesoamericanisotopes to indicate that you've heard all the way through. Thank you to the patrons who keep the show going. If you also want to become a patron and support the show, then go to patreon.com slash Pod to support this public anthropology and archaeology project. New episodes come out three times a week on Monday, Wednesday and Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and arcananth.com. Diana, thank you so much for being today's expert.
1: Thank you so much, Michael, for having me over, mm-hmm. and it's great chatting today and uh, and to our listeners who who uh, I would love to be able to answer their questions or just like uh, read their comments on on Twitter or. Mm -hmm. and social media in general.
0: Yeah, definitely let Diana know if you've listened because I I think all the guests really love uh, knowing that people are listening.
1: Definitely, yes. (laughs)
0: Love
1: talking about research, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, and it's really interesting topics. So uh, I think uh, many people are interested anyway, but always nice to hear. Always, always nice to hear back from the listeners. I'll have another episode out for you soon, listeners. bye Bye
1: -bye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you.